Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number 20 of the Jackson Hole Connection, a podcast featuring worldly interesting people with wildly fascinating stories to share who have a connection to Jackson Hole. My vision for this podcast is to visit with folks who wish to share how in their daily lives they are impacting their community through caring, positive daily action. I hope you're enjoying every episode. Today, my guest is the vibrant, spectacular Nona Yahia. As a child, Nona lived in Lebanon during one of its civil wars. She's also experienced at different points in life the opportunity to reinvent herself. Nona is an internationally recognized architect, a mother, a wife, a sister, the CEO of Vertical Harvest of Jackson Hole. Today, Nona will speak to us about catering to ability, not catering to disability. How empowerment and education can change the lives of people you least expect and the importance of listening to your detractors just as much as listening to your supporters. Before we begin, I have a quick word from one of our sponsors, so hold on, we'll be right back. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. No, no. So nice to have you here today. So nice to be here, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Indeed. I hope that work will survive a few moments without you. That is what 2019 is all about. That's right. (laughs) So, Nona, let's tell all the listeners some background about yourself. Sure. How did you and your husband, Mark, land here in Jackson Hole? Well, that's an interesting story. So Mark and I have known each other since we were very young. So we've known each other since we were 11, which a lot of people find is kind of creepy. But um, we've been best friends <laughs> for uh, forever, really. So I was always kind of the city girl. Mark was always kind of the mountain guy. And so we dabbled in both. We lived in New York City for 10 years. And then I noticed my husband, Mark, who was an attorney, was maybe or maybe not melting into his desk a little bit and just not thriving in New York City. So we had an opportunity. I'm an architect by trade. And so we had an opportunity to build a house out here in Jackson Hole. We're both from Michigan. And while I'd been to California and other places, I had never really been to the Rockies. And Mark did it right. For the first time, we drove out here from Michigan and we went over Togadi Pass and I saw the Tetons for the first time and fell in love with them and thought, now here's a context worthy of exploration just like the city is. And we did just that. We climbed the ground, we did a lot of adventures before moving here and slowly but surely he got me dreaming about what it would be like to live in Jackson. So like I said, we had an opportunity to build a house. We said we'd be here for two years. Uh, we've been here for 15. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, 15 years! Yay! <laughs> and you and Mark are so important to the community of Jackson Hole. I'm glad that it didn't just last for two years. My uh, friends in New York are still like, wait, when are you coming back? <laughs> are you coming back? Are you coming? There's this amazing thing nowadays called planes that they come yeah. come out and visit you, and you can go out and visit them. Yeah, yeah. And the internet, FaceTiming. Oh, there's so many options. So you mentioned that you are an architect by trade. Mm -hmm. Tell us all a little bit of some of your accomplishments 
through architecture? Well, I think moving out here when we did with the architectural scene here in Jackson was really lucky. You know, there are some really amazing architects that have been working in the Valley for a lot longer than I have, which is 13 years. So, you know, there's a really interesting modern movement here in Jackson. And so when I left New York, I was practicing with some really avant-garde architects. We were working on very large-scale competitions. I was right in the center of the hubbub that can be the architectural scene. And I really thought when I moved here that I was done. It was not, you know, I wasn't going to pick it up again. I'd reinvent myself. And I was okay with that, although now I realize that that was a really silly thing to think about. So as I said, I, I was able to build a house out here, lucky enough to build a house, and that got some attention. And uh, then we got clients from that house. I had a pretty robust practice for a good five years until the recession, the global recession hit. And we were working not only on local projects, but international projects. It was a really interesting time. We were building some very large buildings abroad and the global recession hit that country before it hit ours. And so It was a very humbling experience to have a firm that was on the brink of really expanding to nothing, to actually everything being on hold. And so I think looking back now, there have been certain points in my life where I've had the opportunity to reinvent myself, and they've always been just that, opportunities. So the global recession was kind of, and the local recession was one of those opportunities. So we have built a lot of residential houses that I'm very proud of, um, as well as helped some of the businesses that are beloved in Jackson Hole to create their architectural identities, such as Persephone and Steo uh, and some other restaurants in town. And then um, just recently, I've merged with one of the architects that I first met when I came here and who inspired me greatly, Peggy Gilday. And we have started a new firm called Guide Architects. Okay. Congratulations. Thank you. That's wonderful. And you have a very fascinating family background. Mm Mm-hmm. Your last name is Yah Yah. Yes. Yah Yah. Yah Yah. Yah Yah. <laughs> um, and you said, if I couldn't pronounce that, I could pronounce as as Yah 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 Yes. Thank you. No and, problem. And that's Lebanese. Yes. And you said that you grew up in Michigan. Yeah. Tell me how your family landed in Michigan from Lebanon, and what it was like growing up Lebanese in Michigan. Yeah. My dad was recruited here. He's a doctor, and he was recruited as a resident uh, to Detroit during the Vietnam War because a lot of local doctors were going abroad. And so he came and did his residency in Detroit. That was a very different time in our country where uh, people from different countries were actually imported to lend their expertise when needed. So we moved to Detroit. He worked at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. Uh, I think they had never been to America before. My mom had thought that every city was like New York City. And uh, when two weeks after they arrived, the race riots in Detroit broke out. And so that was a real... That was <laughs> eye-opening experience. Eye-opening experience to what America was really about at that time. Uh, but they enjoyed Detroit, but ultimately wanted to go back to Beirut. Um, 
And so we all headed back, I think when I was four, back to Beirut. And then a week after we got there, the Lebanese civil war broke out. So we were stuck in the war for about two years and then we managed to come back to Detroit in one of the ceasefires. So if that war hadn't broken out, I would probably live the rest of my life out in Beirut. But because of that war, our family came back and built an existence in Detroit. I think it's funny, you know, being the daughter of immigrants, which I never say that. I mean, I think I've said that out loud twice. I don't even <laughs> think that. I didn't, like I said, I didn't realize it. I, all my friends were, you know, five foot ten and blonde, but mm-hmm. somehow I didn't see myself as different. And when I did, I saw that there was a lot of opportunity in that difference to really make a mark. And I think that taught me a lot. I grew up in a very beautiful part of Detroit, Gross Point. But I always, uh, with my friends, went downtown Detroit. And I don't know if you've ever been to Detroit, but there's a real line that you cross, you know, from the suburban kind of high class neighborhood to downtown Detroit. And it's like you could blink and miss it. So that, I think, formed me in a lot of different ways. I was very into the music scene in Detroit. I really enjoyed the city. I really enjoyed watching the city grow and then have since watched it decline again. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it's 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 reinventing itself in a really interesting way now. I think it, uh, that experience has formed me in a lot of ways to be comfortable with being different and to be comfortable doing things differently mm-hmm. and to take risks. I mean, my family obviously took a lot of risks as they, you know, tried to to build a, a, a comfortable existence for my brother and I. Do you have many memories of the war in, in Lebanon? I do. Yeah, I didn't. I, I always avoid the 4th of July uh-huh. still to this day. We were in in West Beirut, in downtown West Beirut, and there was a lot of bombing going on. I spent probably when I was four and five sleeping in a hallway with a mattress over my head for most nights. Oh, Lord. So uh, I just remember, you know, being really concerned about my dog getting shot. I, re- You know, I remember s- specific things. The things that were important to a child. Yeah, yeah, things that were important to a child. I remember falling in love with hummus. I remember I ate a lot of hummus Uh growing up. And I remember the love of my family. And that's something that I've been lucky enough to be able to go back to Beirut many times. And the people and the food is always what I go back for. Do you still have family back there? Yeah, I do. I have my grandmother and my aunt, who many say I I was made in her mold. Mm -hmm. That's a nice compliment. Yeah. To yeah, you both. I love her. Very- <laughs> <laughs> I to her. <laughs> yeah. Grandmas are very important. Yes. Yes. I. Yeah. Grandmas are very, very important. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that background, and mm-hmm. you've accomplished so much during your lifetime. Your mom, your mm-hmm. fantastic wife, mm-hmm. but also you are somebody who has an an extreme entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. Somebody to just keep pushing and doing and challenging and taking the risk and. What what fires you up in the morning to continue that every day? Uh, people. I'd say people and the impact you can have on people by taking risk and and opening yourself up to them. I think it's kind of like an addiction, you know, once you open yourself up to that. I've always loved how if you look at something differently or if you change something systematically, if you if you look if you look outside of the box you can 
you can explore new things, right? The thing that I think scares me the most is status quo, <laughs> because then I feel like you're not learning and you're not evolving, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, what are you doing? So I think that's what motivates me is exploring and, and exploring with, with people that I love around me. Do you think you'll ever stop that? learning? No. Good. No. <laughs> I don't think anybody can, right? Uh, I think some people if can, if that's what they choose. But right. but as you said, you constantly are exploring. Yeah. You're challenging the status quo. And by doing that, you're always embarking on new adventures. And you and Mark are the perfect people to embark on new adventures <laughs> together. It's such a sweetheart story and a lovely story. And I think it's spectacular that what you guys have done and the children that you've raised in, here in the community, but also what you have done more recently over the past few years. You left your firm for a little bit mm -hmm. to start a new project mm -hmm. that impacted many people mm -hmm. who were in great need. Yeah. So tell everybody about what that project is. Well, so the my baby and labor of love for the past 10 years, actually 11, LinkedIn told me just the other day, <laughs> and everybody else who was paying, <laughs> was congratulating me, uh, um, was a project called Vertical Harvest of Jackson Hole. And it kind of goes back to that global recession. I think innovation often comes out of need and necessity. I guess I'm not one, as we just explored, to <laughs> sit back and and just wait for things to come to me. And so when there wasn't much architectural work, I was really focused on creating projects, creating explorations, trying to dive into things that interested me so that I was still creating and not not just waiting for the economic situation to be better. So I met a young woman in our community, Penny McBride. I had been working on a residential scale greenhouse that could last the Wyoming winter. And she was a sustainability consultant to businesses and had been working on a myriad of very interesting projects. And she had the thought to try and build a greenhouse in our downtown Jackson, as you know. You know, we only have four months of growing season here in Jackson. So all of the food that we get outside of those four months, and even in those four months, are imported from faraway places. So she approached me and said, you know, I know you've been working on greenhouses. The designs that I'm getting from the East Coast and you know, other places is never going to fly here in Jackson. I had been working with the town on a, on a project, um, the, the local Boulder bouldering park here and so she knew I had a lot of connections there and so she asked me to help her and I jumped right in so we started embarking on this journey to see where could we put a greenhouse we didn't have a site we didn't you know have a scale or just the idea of a greenhouse and we're both big foodies so that guided us a little bit and through our journey because you know Jackson, while it's a rural context, really acts as an urban one because of the presence of the national park. There's not much public or private land to develop. And if there is, it's awfully costly. So uh, we talked to a lot of different people. And during that uh, scenario, Penny met Caroline Croft, who was an employment facilitator for uh, 18 
people with intellectual and physical disabilities um, and was really trying very hard to find consistent, meaningful employment for her clients. So they would work anywhere from three hours a week to, you know, maybe 10 hours a week in different jobs. And she was driving herself and her family's crazy to try and find work for this population. So she came to us and had learned a little bit about the greenhouse and said, hey, if you ladies ever get this greenhouse off the ground, would you employ my clients? And I think that was the real hook for me. Uh, I have a brother with developmental disabilities and growing up in my family, just watching that and knowing that even in the late 70s, you know, as a culture, we really uh, nurtured and, you know, sheltered this population. But when it came time to employment, families were on their own. And so this was something that I was like, yes, a greenhouse that employs people with disabilities, let's do this. So that's really where I started to give my whole entire kind of existence to making this happen. Around the same time, a town councilman pointed out a small parcel of land measuring 30 feet wide by 150 feet long on the southern end of our parking structure. It always had been slated for a community project. He told us that the town was going to put a request for a proposal out and maybe we could put a greenhouse there. Knowing that town councilman, I know that he thought maybe we'd put up a hoop house that would extend the growing <laughs> season by a couple months and employ a few people. Uh, but we had much bigger plans. We really scratched our heads, but we went back to what are our values. We wanted to grow as much food as possible. We wanted to employ as many people as possible. We wanted to do both year round. And that's where the idea to come to go up came from. So now we have one of the world's first uh Vertical greenhouses that stacks three greenhouses on top of one another grows 100,000 pounds of food for our community yearly. 100,000 pounds. Yes, and employs 19 people with different abilities. Um, so we have 20 full-time equivalents that we employ in the greenhouse, but about half of them have uh, some form of physical or intellectual disability, but I like to say that we're all differently abled mm -hmm. and we make an amazing team. The impact for the community, but more importantly for those individuals who work there, it, it's almost as though you can't really define it in some yeah. ways until you see the people working Yes, and how it makes them feel to be able to have meaning, like you said, meaningful employment. Yeah. I mean, look, we all start somewhere. I worked at stocking shelves in an art store in New York City. I remember sleeping in the back of, <laughs> you know, the stock room like, on particularly bad days. But uh you know, before Vertical Harvest, these very talented individuals were bagging groceries, you know, washing dishes and cleaning hotel rooms. And in the short two and a half years that we've been open, these individuals who, you know, really define themselves through working have quickly, I mean, they've blown us all away. All our best laid plans have been blown out of the water because they've moved from entry level positions to managerial positions where nobody ever thought that they would ever manage other people. These are people with autism, who if you know anybody with autism, people skills are not <laughs> high. But, you know, because we have never catered to their disability, but only catered to ability. We have created vehicles for moving forward that were prior to this unforeseen. And 
you asked me before what gets me up in the morning. I love growing food. I love growing food for our community. But if we just grew food in Vertical Harvest, I wouldn't be running it today. I'm running it because of the empowerment that we provide this population and everybody, everybody that works there. The impact is profound. So, you know, not only are people who, like I said, that were bagging groceries or cleaning, now pioneering a really innovative solution to providing what's important to every community, which is the production of healthy, nutritious food. But they're on the cusp of a, the most, the fastest growing industry in agriculture. Uh, vertical farming has a, has a potential to be a part of a solution for some of our biggest global challenges, you know, population growth, land scarcity, water shortages, and this population will be our teachers as Vertical Harvest scales and expands. They know the most about this industry of really a lot of people in the world. It's a new industry. It's very nascent. And and so they will be our leaders and teachers, and it's a sea change for this population and to be able to see what they can do. So we've gone to conferences from, you know, film festivals to uh, ag conferences uh, all together. And they've been, you know, out of the shadows and into the light as leaders. And it's been an incredible process. And I'm sure that you have a website which tells the yes. story, has pictures of not just the workers, but the beauty of this greenhouse. Yes. What is the name of that where, that website? So so the name of our organization is Vertical Harvest. So it's verticalharvestjackson.com. Okay. And please go to that website because with what Nona has described, to see it visually will change what you have in your mind right now based upon what um, what you're thinking being next to a parking garage. Granted, it is a parking garage in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, <laughs> but the structure is beautiful. But circling back to what you said, you now have people who are not strong people skills mm -hmm. people, and you never thought, nobody ever thought that they would be leaders, and now they're leading and helping run the organization. Kudos. Yeah. It's wow. really exciting. And, and it just shows that don't look at an individual for um, what you think they cannot do, but look at them as you don't know what they can do exactly. until you really give them the time and the skills and the training. And the context mm -hmm. to be able to do that. I mean, many individuals, you and I might have one or two disabilities, but we have many abilities, right? And everybody should be looked at that way. And I think it goes back to your question about what it was like or maybe even my answer to what it was like growing up, you know, as Lebanese in America, I didn't see that difference, right? And I think, you know, it's like that guy from Free Solo, he, does, <laughs> you know, he doesn't have that part of his brain that experiences fear. Mm -hmm. I just don't see difference like that. And I think that it's probably because of my upbringing and my brother, but, and he's taught, he's given me my most profound gifts. But it's been exciting to be part of an organization where now all of us don't see difference. You know, we only see potential. And it's it's very cool. It's a, it's a great social impact business. And I believe that other businesses can embrace it. And we've actually started, Caroline Croft has, Estee has started a nonprofit called Cultivate that can help other businesses embrace inclusivity in the workplace. Because mm -hmm. really, I think there is the potential for all of us, like you said, to think that way and operate that way. 
relating how you all are operating vertical harvest and working with the clients that you have, whether you have somebody with mental, physical disabilities or not, it's more of the philosophies and Mm -hmm. management and leadership uh, styles that you have put into place, which has set these people up for success. And if more businesses were guided that way, wow, the difference that we could all make as leaders, as business owners, um, as community members to have faith in somebody and to take somebody by the, by the hand and say, let's do something good. Yeah. And that as a business owner is what I hope to be an example of. And then Caroline and cultivate Mm -hmm. the newest nonprofit in our town uh, we'll be able to do just that. That was a perfect description. And the impact, we've we've been very successful right off the bat with people understanding the impact of that. You know, it's not about replicating services, it's about expanding those services and making sure that you're not only about job placement, but about, you know, how do you train a business to be more inclusive? And, and what are the benefits of that? You know, there are real bottom line benefits mm-hmm. to having a business that is more diverse and inclusive. Indeed. At the liquor store, we have a gentleman. And when we hired him, he was given a job offer at Vertical Harvest. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> And sorry, Nona, but we got Gary. I'm not going to use his last name to protect his um, his identity. But we have Gary, and he's now been with us for three years. And he's helped all of us be better people. Right. And exactly. Our us as an organization just continues to grow with not just Gary, but with everybody else who's there. And we're, we have a, a softer, more um, engaging style of leadership and management. Yeah. Well, and... For us, you know, I think as business owners, you know, one of the biggest hurdles in our town is transients, right? People come here to ski. They don't come here for a career. Mm-hmm. You know, they come here for to ski and they, they want powder days. They want to go out at night. They want to do all of these things. Um, this population lives here. They've lived here for a very long time and they want to work. You know, our employees are there 15 minutes early every day. There are never not at work unless they're deathly ill. In fact, we've kicked a lot of people out of the greenhouse. (laughs) Uh, Holidays are never a problem. Uh, And so, you know, they've really raised the bar for the rest of us, you know, to say, all right, we got to be on time. We have to, you know, to, to meet our expectations. In fact, one of the stories I love to tell Oh, yes. Good story. Please do. do. There's so many stories. (laughs) But so one of the one of the real key factors to breaking breaking even for the business of Vertical Harvest is expanding into major grocery stores such as Albertsons, Smiths. Uh, in order to do some, so we need a certification um, called GAP. It's Good Agricultural Practices. So any farm that's going to sell to a grocery store needs this certification. It is the bane of everyone's existence. It is a really onerous process. It takes forever. Pretty much every farm I talk to in the process to say to see how this could go told me, oh, you know, you will have at least six months to a year of corrective actions before you get the certification. So we put that into our cash flow and, you know, understood that. And because of the ability to train 
this population and to work towards their abilities, we were certified in the first day. You're uh, kidding. No, <laughs> we were certified in the first day. Wow. So, you know, we were able to show through proper training and through, you know, the abilities of this population, once you train them, they are not going to let you stray from that policy. You mm -hmm. know, in, in fact, we just had a little bit of a kerfuffle in the greenhouse where one of our, our senior letters associate, Michelle, was yelling at another employee. And the other employee was like, I don't know why she's being so mean to me. And so, you know, we sat her down, talked to her. She's like, well, when that lady comes back, you know, if he's not properly cleaning the bins, like we're not going to get our certification again. And we're like, what late? We're like, the certifier for the Gap? Inspector. The inspector. So she, that she was just thinking about that the whole uh -huh. entire time. And so it's just been very interesting to see how dedicated. I mean, this it, it is just like I said, it's a sea change for perception. I just love our team more than anything. I think that all of us now, you know, we have Carolina has put together this whole Grow Well model that deals with professional, personal, and community growth. Um, we started the first, you know, we participated and had the first completely inclusive kickball team on the Jackson kickball circuit this summer. We have a bowling league. We have the happiest hour. We all go out together and frankly, I don't like going to parties without my team anymore. <laughs> it's just the best cast of characters you could ever work with, and it's really fun. And what is, I think, just moves me so much is you had the skills and the knowledge and the experience of being an architect. But as far as getting into the business of running a greenhouse, yeah. being a farmer, yeah. You didn't shy away from it. Yeah. You put your all into it and yeah. look at what you have done. You are now certified to sell on a commercial level. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You're you're changing and moving this community in the right way and also influencing other people to take notice of how a lot of hard work mm -hmm. and persistence will get you so far. Well, and thank you. Congratulations, Nona. Thank you. So proud of you. It's it's really exciting. I mean, and I think, you know, being an architect and still practicing as an architect with Peggy, that is my fundamental love. You know, we have a tagline called design and everything. And um, that, you know, it we've designed the town's uh, trash cans and their benches. And, you know, we see design and everything, including businesses. And to see the business is kind of a structure and ecosystem that has, you know, that you can build. Uh, I think it was an easy shift for me. Um, now I had to, a lot of catching up to do with, you know, what it means. I can, I can still barely see it, say the title CEO, what that means, you know, like, <laughs> but I really, I mean, I, I live and breathe it and understand financials like I never have before because I know how it fits into the whole system. So I think it's it's interesting. I've really enjoyed being a businesswoman and an entrepreneur. My mother was a businesswoman and worked in the area of disability. And I it's funny how we all do become our parents one way or another. <laughs> that is true. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So now on to 
the the rest of the day for you mm-hmm. in the world of farming mm-hmm. and is this the world of farming where things start at sunrise and end <laughs> at sunset or um is it easier to manage but with it being in a greenhouse environment mm-hmm. but then again like you said it had to be in wyoming yeah wyoming winters yeah what was that like learning how to design something to withstand wyoming winters well we were very lucky that we had the help of many Dutch manufacturers and engineers. Um, They're on the forefront of this industry, have been hydroponic farming for generations uh, or controlled indoor agriculture. So they helped us design the building. I will say, although I love my Dutch and Danish counterparts dearly, they were like, oh, yeah, this is so easy. You turn it on, you start growing. Easy as that. (laughs) You know, so we took, you know, two years to really dial it in. Uh, We're very excited to be in our third year here to really, I think our consistency and the quality of what we're producing is really to the level where we're all happy with. You know, what's what's challenging, most vertical farms are monocrops. They grow lettuce, sometimes microgreens, sometimes both. We, because we're a community impact model, right, we we really are different than the whole industry of vertical farming where we are really connected to the community. We also, because of the structure of greenhouse, are able to grow a portfolio of crops. So we grow tomatoes, lettuce, and microgreens. And each of those different crops are like a different farm and a different skill set, which is great for our employment model because we can customize jobs for people's abilities. Uh, But it's very difficult to learn standard procedures. So while most farms in the vertical farming industry today have... Uh, a growing system that they're very protective of. They've developed a growing system and all the intellectual property is surrounded around that growing system itself. And they've built the farm around that system. We've kind of taken it the other way. We're saying, okay, we're growers. We're farmers. And so our intellectual property is in the standard operating procedure. So we're always there trying to say, how can we do this better? Mm -hmm. How can we do this better for tomatoes, which is like an art? And how can we do this better for lettuce, which is a science? Mm-hmm. And that's really fascinating to, to write those, you know, procedures for each of those farms. Uh, and then to understand how to get people to staff them. So that's really what my day, my day is steeped in analysis of those of those procedures. And especially since a, not a week goes by where we do not get a call from another community who wants to replicate what we're doing and to scale what we're doing. And we're about to embark on designing a greenhouse that's three times the size of our own in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that is fully engaged with our employment model and our brand of the community impact model. And so they will be a 45,000 square foot greenhouse in the center of Lancaster. And so that's where my architectural and farming worlds come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's really exciting, what we're working on is, at Guide is really understanding what are the kit of parts for the architecture and what are the kit of parts for the, how do you operate the architecture. And that's what's really exciting about my journey I think that I'm one of the few people, you know, in the industry who has written the business plan, designed the building, built the building, and now operate the building. And so that's been fun. I love hearing that, that it's been so much fun for you. Wrapping things up today, Mm -hmm. if there's one little bit of information, 
or skill or idea, thought that you want to leave people with? What is that? Well, it's funny. It hasn't changed from the inception of the project. I get that question a lot. And what's advice? Because there are a lot of people that are really interested in architecture. There are a lot of people who are really interested in social impact and being an entrepreneur in vertical farming. And I think, you know, you said it, it takes a lot of persistence, right? But what is, that's, that's a given, but the quality of that persistence, right? So is it persistence in driving your idea home? How do you get some, something innovative done? And I think the thing that I've learned is to listen to your detractors and value them as much as your supporters because they make you stronger. So a a short story here. In the beginning of the process, because we're a public-private partnership with the town of Jackson, we had to submit our business plan to the town every time we needed approval from them. For So as an entrepreneur, that's like hell on earth, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the biggest nightmare. And so at the time, the head of the Tea Party got his hands on the business plan. We were applying for public money from the state to build the project from the Wyoming Business Council. And he uh, pulled me aside and said, you know what? You're using public money. Your business plan doesn't make a lick of sense. This is a ludicrous idea. You're parading around like a nonprofit and you're going to actually be a business. I'm going to kill your project. And I was like, hey, hang on a second. Like, you know, let's talk about this. So we proceeded to go to lunch with this gentleman for probably six months, every month, maybe sometimes twice a month. And at the end of the process, I'll never forget it, I was exhausted. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you know, no, no, what you do when you bat down all the no's. And I, and I said to him, I cannot deal with riddles right now. What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> and he said, you turn it into a yes. And he became our biggest advocate. So he came to the Wyoming Business Council and spoke on our behalf to get the grant. He went to the governor and the slib board to speak on our behalf to get the grant. And I believe to this day that without his advocacy, we wouldn't have been successful in those efforts. So we learned a lot from him. And the biggest thing that he said about us was that we listened. Mm-hmm. And so in this time where, you know, no matter where you stand, uh, everything seems so divided, I think, you know, really understanding that it's listening to the people who don't agree with you and you don't, it's not like conceding to them. There are a lot of things where I just said that's, that I'm not going to give on that. But just listening can make your efforts stronger. And then you know that when you get to the real test that you've prepared yourself. Well said. That's a great story. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This was really fun. It has been. We're going to have to get Carolyn on here. Yes. And she can talk all about what her project is. And Jen Tanikin, who has documented our first 15 months of operation. And this summer we'll be premiering Hearts of Glass in Jackson Hole. And we're really excited about that. And that's being produced by Jen Ten. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Hearts of Glass. Hearts of Glass. Coming out soon. Yes. I will, we'll see about if we can find some information and put that in the I'm show notes. Sh- I'm <laughs> sure I bet she sure would like you it. Can. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Thank you, Nona. Say hello oh, to the family, you. and it's been spectacular having you here, and keep on growing. Well, thanks. This is a great way to catch up with yes, you. Yes, indeed. I loved it. <laughs> thanks. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. 
Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review The Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. A special shout out to my friend Luke Taylor for producing and providing the tunes for this podcast. Luke, you help bring it all together. Y'all come back again. You hear?